Well, this is the one we've been waiting for all week long, a non-title matchup. What the heck does Jimmy Hart have in his arms? Breakfast from jail? Uh, I don't think so. Wild guess. From Television City in Hollywood. All right, you guys, you know this is for fun, so take it easy and give them a good show. Now stay tuned for professional wrestling live from the Springfield Crapolarium. Tonight, a Texas death match. Dr. Hillbilly versus the Iron Yuppie. One man will actually be unmasked and killed in the ring. I hope they kill that Iron Yuppie. Thinks he's so big. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, greetings from Allentown is not taped in front of a live studio audience. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 192 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host Peter Winston. And today, well, I alluded to this briefly at the end of last week's show, how eh, I might skip ahead in 1991, might do one with some Survivor Series promos since tis the season and all that. So I'm going to do WWF Superstars from November 2nd, 1991 because now this means I'm only two sh- after I'm after I'm done with this. Assuming I'll get through this show without dying first, which, you know, in this day and age, you know, who who really knows. I'll only have two superstars left from November of 91 to cover out of the five. The 9th and the 30th. They've already done the 16th and the 23rd. Kind of a big month for the World Wrestling Federation and this show absolutely no exception. It's during sweep, so of course you're going to have a feature bout involving the Intercontinental Champion, Bret the Hitman Hart, but also a second feature bout, which, well, maybe maybe a little bit less, with one guy clearly on the downside and one of them ascendant. But before I get into all that, I want to get into my plugs. You can email the show, greetingsfromallentown at gmail.com, facebook.com slash blah, blah, blah. And on Twitter, at GFAllentownPod, that is at GFAllentownPod, where I just mainly tweet out pictures of Survivor Series teams and make comments about the various things going on, you know, in in the photo. Got a couple of the ones from this show, the screenshots that I've just been grabbing, because it, it just brings me so much joy to see, like, four different characters with four completely different motivations in the same thing. But uh, anyway, I, I don't want to walk down that road. I do want to remind you, in case you missed it, the GFA Live series with me and Keithy of the Best of the World Wrestling Federation from Coliseum Video. I mean, we're rapidly nearing the end there. We're like three quarters of the way through. Did volume five last weekend, and at the end tacked on some very, very hard-hitting analysis of a scene from Karate Kid 2 in which Mr. Miyagi receives the letter from Okinawa as Daniel is building the guest house and all, all that sort of stuff. I'm sure we'll figure out something for Volume 6 this week. And by the way, there's something on Best of WWF Volume 6. I cannot wait to talk about it because it's, it is an insane blunder from the World Wrestling Federation, Coliseum Video. I, I, I don't know who to lay the blame on. Now, that that's a lot more fun to talk about than election stuff. 
because I, I generally, you know, try to keep it free of talk about that since you can only turn on about 35 channels and hear about that. And certainly we're all mourning the loss of Alex Trebek, WrestleMania 7 celebrity. This has not been the best, speaking of elections, not been the best year for WrestleMania 7 celebrities where they're just sitting in the crowd or whatever. All I know is we got to get like a cordon around Henry Winkler and Willie Nelson because they need to be protected at all costs. Marla Maples, eh, eh, I don't, I don't really care. But Willie Nelson and Henry Winkler should be given the utmost protection. Alex Trebek died this past Sunday at the age of 80. It was kind of tough because, I mean, he had pancreatic cancer, and that's what took my own father 15 years ago. And my father religiously watched Jeopardy. He had a VHS tape that, you know, he didn't rotate through them, but he would tape Jeopardy each night in the era before DVR, set the timer for 7.30, Channel 7, or whatever it was. So, the, the, I don't know. It, it kind of hit me in a certain way just because they died of the exact same thing. And Alex Trebek, it, it, obviously a top three to five game show host of all time. What's funny, though, is I read this article about how when Jeopardy reemerged in 1984 after about a decade hiatus, at least from when Art Fleming hosted the show, they were ripping it as being uh, too pop centered and not focused on, you know, intelligence or whatever, which I've never found that at all, except for maybe like the celebrity Jeopardy and that weird one, the, the rock and roll Jeopardy, which has nothing to do with Trebek, I, I must say. In thinking about it, too, it is strange how Alex Trebek died so near in time to Sean Connery, given how they're forever linked because of the Celebrity Jeopardy stuff from Saturday Night Live, which I'll say it again, the Sean Connery character on there is not as good as the Burt Reynolds character. So yeah, Norm over Daryl Hammond every day of the week. In addition to the sad news about Trebek that we got over the weekend, here on Sunday in Massachusetts, and this is a really weird coincidence for me, I, I, I'm i sitting on the couch in the morning, and I don't know what I was doing. Maybe I was watching the Valerie Bertinelli cooking show. I, I don't know what I was doing. And i like, oh, well, that's a heavy truck rumbling down the street. No, not a heavy truck rumbling down the street. It was an earthquake. And I thought, hmm, usually we don't get earthquakes like this, And but I see reports. It was, you know, I apparently centered down in southeastern Mass, but... Apparently, it was set higher to the ground. Look, I'm not a walking natural disaster, nor am I a geologist or whatever, so I, I don't know exactly how it works. I remember there was an earthquake in Virginia, and we were able to feel it in Massachusetts. But suffice to say, I was a little bit weirded out that I did the earthquake squashing Damien angle, and then three days later, we get a 4.2 earthquake here in Massachusetts. And I don't know. Uh, maybe I should just lay off the John Tenta stuff for a little while. Maybe stay away from Texas tornado matches, although I should have checked to see, make sure that Typhoon wasn't on this show. Of course, he's teaming with Earthquake, so I, I did screen it for that. But, I don't know, it just, just weirded me out. But not enough to continue my absolute never-ending project of cleaning out my mother's house. It was a beautiful 75-degree day, which meant, once again, I was back in the garage, which is... Pretty terrible, and starting to get some slim pickings in there, but I was able to find some crazy stuff while I was there. 
So, all right, hit the music for crazy crap that I found in my mother's house or garage. Here's the thing about cleaning out stuff. It starts to get a little slim for this segment when you've cleaned out a lot of stuff. But as I get further back in the garage, I'm, I'm still finding a few things, but some of it is just weird. Like, for example, coming in at number three this week, there's there's a giant barrel that was taking up space. And it, it was nothing but yard waste inside. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just shovel it into a yard waste bag. And then when they when the city comes by to collect yard waste in a week or two, I'll just drag it out to the curb. But as I'm shoveling, I'm finding, like, you know, like plastic stuff where you can, like, put, like, little plants in it or whatever. And then eventually I get near the bottom and I find a freaking shoe. Now, what the hell is a shoe doing in the middle of the area? It's like a sneaker. I, I don't know how it got there, how long it's been there. I didn't want to... I, I basically don't breathe for the entire time. Like, all this dust and particulates. As a matter of fact, it was probably a time I definitely should have been wearing a mask, but, you know, I was away from people and inside of a garage, so I didn't think there, there was a need, but I think mask on next time. So that comes in at number three. Number two, as I'm going through these horrific plastic bins, and I say horrific because you can't fold them up and throw them away. It's like they're just, they just are what they are, and you have to throw it away whole, or I don't I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. So as I'm going through, you have to make sure that there's not like a $100 bill or a savings bond, for that matter, sitting in these things. But I happened to find a piece of paper that I forget exactly what it was, but it was a, a an event that my father attended. It was, I don't know if it was like guidance counselor awards or some sort of charity benefit or whatever, but this particular banquet... The date on it kind of amused me. March 27th, 1985. Now, why this is still around 35 years later, I don't know. It, ju- it just ends up in the garage, and then nobody nobody thinks about it. I mean, this is four days before the first WrestleMania. <laughs> like, that is how long ago it is. But then again, I'm finding ice receipts from 1869, so it's kind of pales in comparison. But coming in at number one is actually one of my items. That I still have for some reason. Now, I was fond of books as a kid. Yeah, I read all the Matt Christopher sports books, and I did find a couple of those as well. But sports books in particular, and sports almanacs. Like, was there a real purpose for it? Well, there was no internet back then. So to look up sports facts, you had to actually have a sports almanac. But I recall purchasing media guides for various teams if I was in a place and like, that would be why I would have the 1995-96 Orlando Magic Media Guide with Shaquille O'Neal on the cover his last year with the Magic and Penny Hardaway and all those guys having got swept by the Rockets in the finals the year before. But I still can't bring myself to throw it away. I don't know why. I should probably just give it out as a prize to somebody who listens to the show like, hey, do you want an Orlando Magic Media Guide? Hey, I'll just, I'll just send it to you. I'll, I'll pay the freaking postage. I don't care. That's what I should do. I should just give away all the all the crap that's in my mother's house. In fact, I'm just going to probably put a bunch of stuff out on the curb next Saturday and just put a big free sign. Hey, take them away, toys. I mean, I mean, take them away, boys. Anyway, that's the crazy crap I found in my mother's garage.
1991 saw two big changes to the Survivor Series. Number one, we saw a non-Survivor Series elimination style match for the very first time with The Undertaker challenging Hulk Hogan in the gravest challenge. Pretty pretty neat pun there, I have to say, because it made a lot of sense. And also, it was moved to Thanksgiving Eve from Thanksgiving night, which I understand the purpose of why they would move off of Thanksgiving night, but Thanksgiving Eve might not be the best time for it because I remember, uh, you know, when I first got to college, Thanksgiving Eve would be the time that you come back, everybody's back, so you kind of have like reunions of sorts, and you're probably not going to sit in your house watching wrestling. Although, now that I think about it, maybe if your friends from high school all watched wrestling and they're all back from college or whatever, maybe you would get together and watch wrestling and, and just kind of do it that way. I don't know. Me and my friends, we go out for, like, roast beef sandwiches or something because, you know, we're North Shore kids from Massachusetts, and that's how we do things. And I always have a special fondness for the 1991 Survivor Series, as I do for any pay-per-view that I actually saw live. Like a lot of people love WrestleMania 6, and yes, it is a great show, but I'll never hold it in the same esteem as people who saw it live because I didn't get the pay-per-view. Same for SummerSlam 90, which I've grown to love over the years. But like the 1990 Survivor Series, I got that on pay-per-view. Come to think of it, I got... Four years in a row, Survivor Series on pay-per-view, which not for any other pay-per-view that of the big four at the time did I get in each of those years. It was always the Survivor Series, probably because, you know, Thanksgiving night, or in this case, Thanksgiving Eve, I mean, you know, keep me quiet and, you know, just watching TV for, it's a small price to pay the 1999 or whatever it was for that. Now, this show here, we, we got the feature bout of the Mountie challenging Bret the Hitman Hart in an all-Canada matchup. A, a match made for Maple Leaf Wrestling, but here we are on Superstars. We also got the big boss man, which thankfully there's a talking point not involving the boss man because he was on last week's show as well. Legion of Doom and the Nasty Boys as well, so we got rivals. And then the other match, a former WWF champion, Colonel Mustafa, taking on... Sid Justice. I mean, when I when I saw Sid Justice versus Colonel Mustafa, it's like, look, I don't care how long the match is. This this is something I want to be a part of. Now, as for this taping, despite this airing in November, it was actually taped in September, but really not that far because it was September 30th in Wheeling, West Virginia. And, I, you know, I like to go through some of the dark matches or, or even stuff that might have aired on primetime wrestling that – they did on these shows double trouble beat two unknowns now this is not valentine and honky tonk man in their 1989 name i don't know who that is i mean maybe i could drill deeper on it but i'm gonna be honest i really don't care because i saw this result which aired on primetime wrestling october 21st and you know this really makes me wish not only do i love the variety show era of primetime wrestling as it was rapidly nearing an end, I believe the 4th of November was the last version of that before they went to that desk format that, quite frankly, I don't enjoy as much. But on, on that prime time on October 21st, Texas Tornado, Greg Valentine, and Jimmy Snuka defeated the Beverly Brothers and Pat Tanaka. I mean, what what a match that sounds like. Valentine, Kerry, and Snuka. It's like, take all those guys from the year 1984, but, oh, wait, it's 1991. It's just completely different. 
After the match, by the way, the Beverly brothers hit the Beverly bomb on Pat Tanaka. So I didn't know that there was a de facto Pat Tanaka heel turn, a face turn, I guess it would be in that case. That's kind of hard to turn face when heels are beating you up. I mean, that, that that's probably not the strongest thing for your character. Also on this taping, the British Bulldog power slamming the Doctor of Style Slick straight into the, I was going to say priesthood, but ministership. Well, he becomes Reverend Slick when he reemerges and he leaves as a manager at this point. And we're stuck with Harvey Whippleman as the manager on that level. Certainly a downgrade from Slick, who I have to admit wasn't really doing a whole lot in 91. I think his last great moment was that promo at WrestleMania 7 with the Warlord. So anyway, lots going on in the WWF in this mini attitude era of sorts. I mean, we're going to see, you know, little bits and pieces of it as we go forward. So why don't I just get right to it? It's WWF Superstars, November 2nd, 1991. I know on some of the recent shows, I've brought up what Saved by the Bell episode aired on that day, and I also raised the point that by 1991, they're airing two episodes on Saturdays, and sure enough, here on November 2nd, 1991, they had a two-part series, and I don't remember the Attitude Era of Saved by the Bell, but this has got to be pretty close to it, so I'll read the episode description of Part 1 and Part 2, The Wicked Stepbrother. Jesse meets her new stepbrother, Eric, but soon discovers he has a dark side, and he uses blackmail to get his way. Meanwhile, Eric takes a liking to Lisa, and Zack and Slater decide to get their revenge on Eric by setting him up to get caught driving Mr. Belding's shiny new red convertible while on a date with Lisa. Things go awry, however, when Eric lets Lisa drive the car, and she gets blinded by the flash of the camera that the boys use to take a picture of Eric in Belding's car, causing her to crash into a wall. That's all just part one, by the way. Part two, Eric learns that Zack and Slater paid Lisa off to go out with him in order to get him in trouble for driving Belling's car. And when Eric confronts Lisa about it, she's crushed. She actually fell in love with him. To get back at the guys, Eric has the auto mechanic class take a totaled car apart. When Jesse finds out, she confronts him about it and demands that he fix the car. When Eric refuses and gives her trouble by calling her a chick, Jesse gives him a black eye for being sexist and tells him if she wants him out of her life. To make amends, Eric puts Belding's car back together himself so that Zack and Slater do not get in trouble and apologizes. Regardless of what happened, Lisa tells Eric that she likes him and would like another date with him. Well, I don't think we ever saw Eric again. And that's kind of a playoff an old episode of Happy Days where Fonzie got blinded and he had to rebuild the motorcycle completely blind. And when he did, that was when he realized that he had regained his sight. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure that that was after the shark jumping on Happy Days. Still, I, I, I contend we got to protect Henry Winkler at all costs. So our hosts are Vince McMahon, the macho man Randy Savage, who is desperately wants to get reinstated. And, of course... Rowdy Roddy Piper. Now, his appeal to the benevolent president, Jack Tunney, who, by the way, left office with a peaceful transfer of power. I, I just feel that should be brought up when it went over to Gorilla Monsoon. Yeah, he probably wasn't happy about it, but there were, there were no shots fired. So there, this is, we're past the point where Vince McMahon is giving us a lot of information about Wheeling, West Virginia, but he's going to mention a tidbit about it. 
and they're going to play off the pun for the entire time like they're doing an NBC show. Coming to you this week from the birthplace of Bayer Aspirin, it's superstars. Welcome, everyone. I'm Vince Man, along with a hot rod, Rowdy Ronnie Piper, and this man, the macho man Randy Savage, who as a result of President Jack Tony's decision this past week, denying him reinstatement, will probably need a couple of these. I was hoping to get a little relief from the pain caused by Jake Roberts, but it looks like that's not going to hit. Yes. And I was hoping to get that relief without all the stomach upset caused by President Jack Tony. But it looks like that's not going to happen yet either. Pretty hard pill to swallow. Isn't it how much? It's huh? a bitter pill, Piper. But I'm here to tell you that the whole world, and especially you, Jake Roberts, that the macho man is not sugar-coated, that the macho man is not micro-encapsulated, and that the macho man don't go down so easy. Hey, all I gotta say is pro wrestlers and pills. Now that's the true match made in heaven, not the macho man and Elizabeth. But as for Bear aspirins or whatever not really founded in wheeling west virginia's wheeling based sterling products that developed aspirin starting in 1901 eventually they market in the pittsburgh area and then when world war ii rolled around the u.s government seized german-owned frederick bears company's american holdings so and then it was purchased by the company that had Bayer. but anyway that that's how that works out so now we go to our first match, bookends of the golden era of the World Wrestling Federation, the champion at the dawn of 1984, Colonel Mustafa, nay, the Iron Sheik, but okay, he's Colonel Mustafa, and they are actually acknowledging it as such, and he's taking on Sid Justice, who would go on and win the title in 1996 at the Survivor Series, and then in 97 as well, going in to WrestleMania 13. Kind of funny that each of these guys won that championship, not in the name that they're using at this point. Now, I wrote a note here that Mustafa, Iron Sheik, was moving pretty damn well on his way to the ring, and then I realized, oh yeah, that's right, I had it at 1.25 times speed. Which I don't know why, because it's going to be a Sid squash match, as... Sid's walking down, he he says it's personal into the camera, which, you know, him and Jake had a run-in on the October 19th Superstars. And I got to save that because I'm I'm when next time I do a 1991 show, it's probably going to be that one. It was on this same taping, and the angle that they were going for was very familiar. Usually I'll just talk about it. But uh, really, I, I don't want to spoil that because I had completely forgotten about it until recent years. So Mustafa attacks from behind. Absolutely no effect on Sid with some clubbering forearms. And then a reversal of an Irish whip. Sid just kicks the former Iron Sheik in his rather ample gut. Although he had lost weight. he uh, Well, I don't know if he lost weight or if he actually gave birth to whatever he was carrying at the Great American Bash that time, where he looked like he was legitimately pregnant. But he took a boot to the gut, power bomb, and it's over. Sid wins this match in about 51 seconds. And it was every bit as good and glorious as it sounds. And then General Adnan comes in, and he gets power bombed for his trouble. But Billy White Wolf never thought he'd be taking a power bomb in a WWF ring like that. But 
hey, you know, the world has changed a lot in 14 years since that character was around. As Sid kind of makes a mistake here, thinking he's still in WCW, he starts cutting a promo to the camera, but we can't hear what he's saying because the announcers are talking over it. But again, this is a Sid Justice match. I love the name Sid Justice. I mean, I know that it wasn't going to carry along, but it certainly doesn't have the negative connotations that Sid Vicious does. I've always found the Sex Pistols to be just wildly overrated. Yeah, they might have influenced other bands, but just because they influenced other bands, they, they just went and improved on it. You know why they improved on it? Because I don't think the Sex Pistols were that good. Anyway, Sid, your WWF run, oh, it just didn't last long enough because he tears his bicep not long after this and would be out of the Survivor Series and we wouldn't even see him again until very close to the Royal Rumble. It's such a such a damn shame to think of it because I, I was so ready for Babyface Sid to basically be passed the reins by Hulk Hogan. And then I stopped watching after WrestleMania 8, which a lot of people did, but I had my reasons. It's, I I did not like Sid being a heel. He was not my Hasbro universe, and I just wasn't going to stand for it. Was it a tantrum? Well, no, because other people stop watching, too. We all just have different reasons to carry on. Every so often, I like to go back to Cameo to see if Sid has made himself available on the site again. I don't think he would be impacted by WWE's ridiculous edict about people making money off third party, considering he's been out of the company for 20 years, with only sporadic appearances, I guess. I guess he showed up in Powerbomb Heath Slater once. It's not like I feel like dialing up the network to watch that. But Sid is on Cameo here, but it does say... Notify me when available, and below that it says, typically responds in 365 days, <laughs> which is like, that is the most Sid thing ever, where you do a cameo request, pay the money, and he doesn't get back to you for a year. Update, an inside look, from the pages of the World Wrestling Federation magazine. Hi again everyone, update is brought to you by Coliseum Home Video, and the World Bodybuilding Federation bringing you... The WBF Championship Premier Event, available on video cassette on November the 14th. By the way, folks, I was there. This is absolutely a must-see for anyone who is interested in health or physical fitness. That's not me. That's not my interest. I don't need to see Eddie Robinson and Gary Stridham flexing. I, I just started taking one-a-day vitamins. That, that's my That's my view of health at this point. It's those nice gummy ones that, like, it, it feels like you're eating candy, but you're getting, like, your vitamin A, B, and C, and D, and all that, and, you know, keep from getting rickets because you have to stay inside. So in this update segment, we're talking about the issue between Rowdy Roddy Piper and the self-professed real world's champion Ric Flair, which I already covered. The main, one of the main parts of this angle took place on the September 28th Superstars. And I covered that back in episode 89. And I'm really gratified that a few people have written in and said like, oh yeah, 
yeah, I've listened to the archives of the show. I've been a listener since episode two or episode four. It really warms my heart to, to hear that. But back episode 89, Ric Flair comes over to the commentary desk, slaps around Piper, and, and, and they, they mention it here. But before that, rewind to the end of August on the funeral parlor. Bobby Heenan is out there and, and never gets it. <laughs> it's always surreal when you see the NWA title or, you know, the big gold belt on television. Now it's lessened because, you know, we reintroduced in 2002 and then you saw it until like 2013, that particular title. Actually, I think it was through 2014. But anyway, seeing Heenan out there at the belt talking to Paul Bearer and Roddy Piper comes out there, and I have to say, I don't particularly endorse what Piper did in this case. Let me tell you something. If Ric Flair was standing out here right now, he'd have you on your hands and knees in your little uh, kilt, and he'd have you shining the belt of the real world champion. I'll shine the belt. You want me to shine the belt? I'll give her a nice shine. I'll give her a nice spit shine. Yes, Piper spit on the belt, and he also spat at Bobby Heenan as well. And I have to say, seeing it through COVID-19 eyes and everything that's been going on, where you kind of look askance at people who are coughing, I'm just here to report, for, for any of you who might have forgotten, that spitting on other people has never been cool, ever. I am going to make an exception here. No, I'm not talking about Roberto Alomar, because I wasn't an Orioles fan at that time. Bret Hart spitting at Vince McMahon in Montreal after that Survivor Series thing. Yeah, okay, I- I'm I'm willing to let that one go. But only because it was in Canada, in Bret Hart's home country. If it was in the States, well, you know, I might look at it differently. But spitting on the belt would be a real no-no. But of course, at this point, the case law hadn't been settled that a title is the intellectual property of the wrestling promotion of which it's the championship of. That, that hadn't been settled yet. So spitting on the belt, that's a, that's fine at this point. But by 1995, throwing it in the trash, that is an absolute no-no. So now we get into the episode 89 stuff from Greetings Malentine. When Flair, he's about to make his in-ring debut on Superstars and decides to drop by the announce desk and hassle Roddy Piper a bit. And we only see part of it. Eventually, it ends up with Vince McMahon being knocked out 
by a Roddy Piper chair shot as he just swung it wildly, thinking that it was flair behind him. Now, you're wondering, why isn't the Macho Man getting involved? Well, he was strictly prohibited from getting involved in anything physical by the benevolent, alleged benevolent, President Jack Tunney. Now, Piper and Flair, they absolutely had to love this because they are great friends, and they hadn't been in the same company at the same time in about eight years at this point. So the chance to work together, I mean, Piper is eating pinfalls against Ric Flair, which is the kind of thing that never happened, which is the level of respect Piper clearly had for Flair. So, you know, still an okay thing, even though we don't get to see Vince taking the bump. But what's interesting to me from this, and for whatever reason, I don't remember this from episode 89. Maybe this is just something they played up in the short term for this particular week, is that Flair doesn't want Hogan's belt. He just wants to beat him which is fine for those of us who prefer the big gold belt to the winged eagle. I I, I suppose that would suffice. But, yeah, Flair just wants to beat Hogan. Like, oh, that's a nice pipe dream. Yeah, you're going to be waiting until, like, Uncensored 99 or something. It'll be, like, a first blood match or some sort of nonsense. But what's good here is Bobby Heenan is still the manager, financial advisor, consigliere. I I, I don't don't even know because he's accompanying him to ringside. But it would not be for long, because as Heenan said, it was like hanging out with Larry Flint during his Hall of Fame speech. But yeah, it, it's kind of kind of the dream here, where in the AWA you had Nick Bockwinkle doing promos with Bobby Heenan, and here, I mean, this this is every bit as good. Ric Flair and Bobby Heenan together, a dream team of sorts, and a good dream team because it doesn't have Dino Bravo in it. You know, no one believe me, Rick. When I said that the real world champion, Ric Flair, would be coming to the World Wrestling Federation. Well, you know, for a fact, Piper didn't believe it because he spit on the belt. Well, Piper, I told everyone the first time I saw you, whap, I'd slap you. And I did. You know, and Hulk Hogan, you're a great champion. Matter of fact, you're the World Wrestling Federation champion. But you're not the <laughs> real world champion. Hogan, you've got nothing I want. And in the Survivor Series, the Undertaker's going to bury you. I just want to beat you. Woo! This is a really interesting tack that they're taking where Flair doesn't want the title because he's already carrying around this one. Of course, eventually they'd have to video distort the belt once that case was settled, that belts were intellectual property, That in this case that being of WCW. So maybe they had to cut it short because of that. I, I, I don't know. Or maybe Flair decided, you know what, I actually do want the WWF title. But hearing this makes his interference at Survivor Series helping The Undertaker, it certainly makes a lot more sense. So up now we have the big boss man who is in the process of being killed dead by the IRS feud. Yeah, I know the next year you're going to have nails and that caught people's attention, but also it was nails and... IRS certainly did not help him at all. Bossman is taking on Bruce Mitchell. And no, not the wrestling writer, Bruce Mitchell. Apparently he was informed of that by Dave Meltzer, who got a, got word that a there was a Bruce Mitchell at the tape. He's like, did you know that a jobber was using your name? Of course, there's a long tradition in wrestling where, for whatever reason, if a promotion doesn't like a particular writer, they'll, they'll name a jobber after him. I think they're... Somewhere there was a team like Dave Meltzer and Wade Keller 
you know, maybe it was Memphis. Uh, who knows exactly where it was? Probably sure that somebody out there knows, but I, again, I don't feel like looking that up. Now, a lot is made about how the big boss man lost a lot of weight in 1990 and into early 91, but I'm looking at him now, and maybe it's the prospect of feuding with IRS, but it looks like he put a little bit of weight back on. He still has the athleticism, the agility. I mean, he slides between Mitchell's legs earlier in the match, and he clotheslines him over the top. It's just kind of a weird start to the match, Mitchell going for the ride over the top rope. And the inset promo, hearing the boss man talk about what he's going to do to IRS, it, it just makes me sad. Extension, whether it be in singles competition or when I meet you in Survivor Series, you're going to find out that nobody but nobody's above the law, especially not you, IRS. You know, when you really think about it, I know this is a big boss man match and not IRS, but I, I have started to screen these shows to make sure that I don't have too many IRS matches. Thinking about that character, it is one of the more fascist characters that you'll ever find in wrestling because the tax man, he's all about control hmm wait a minute maybe i figured out why parv is the way that he is now a- anyway i'm not calling him out or anything i'm just, I'm just ma- stating a fact here you know the old pro wrestling only podcaster anyway boss man slam finishes and mitchell for his part well he's not the best looking jobber in the world he does take it very well louis spicoli still the gold standard for that the debut of the big boss man back in june of 1980 he, he went up for that boss man slam so he he's number one in my book and that it was episode 22 or 24. Probably should have looked that up. But I kind of stopped writing stuff down. I mean, even though I'm reading a lot of this from a notebook, it's just, just kind of, it's going straight from brain out of mouth. He cuffs Mitchell to the rope and, again, just kind of yells at him. And I'm glad. There's no no reason to just beat the crap out of the guy for really no reason. Yes, to it, brother. Survivor Series! I want you out there to take a good look! At this winning team, because this is the team that's going to shock the world. <laughs> Every man on this team knows what he has to do. You British Bulldog are going to feel the power and strength that I possess, and I'll take a bite right out of you. That's right, Virgil. I didn't become a wealthy man by being stupid or associating with losers. And pound for pound, man for man, we got the classiest team going, and you are going to find out in a very, very near future just what it's all about. Sign that belt up, boy. After Survivor Series, it's going to be one question. Ask by all, what's causing all that? I'll tell you what's causing it. The greatest wrestling team put together of all time. Piper, the word is you're looking for a way out. Well, the only way out will be courtesy of the four of us. You can run, but you can't hide. Survivor Series, learn to love it. It's the best thing going today. The only thing I want, gentlemen, I want you to give me breath to hit my heart. You're going to see why they call you a hitman. You got it. Here we come. (laughs) Yeah, boy. And there it is, straight out of the event center. I had two different versions of this episode of Superstars to choose from. One of them had an event center talking about the MSG show at the end of the month. 
But I'm not nearly as interested in that because we get extra Survivor Series team promos with Ric Flair, Ted DiBiase, the Mountie, and the Warlord. And what a what a crew, what a mix that is. I mean, did you hear Ric Flair there? It says, is the greatest team of all time. Certainly the greatest four-man unit that Ric Flair has ever been associated with in professional wrestling. Are you saying that he would lie to you like that? I don't think so. He's been proclaiming himself the real world's champion. He didn't lose the WCW or the NWA title. So that is true. So we have license to believe him in this case. However, I, I do question the Mountie getting the last word. Also, DiBiase really doesn't get to say anything. Like, it's kind of funny. He's just laughing in the background, like very, very low the entire time. It's like DiBiase is the bass player of this team. I would say Warlord is on drums. Cause he's got that, he's got that W thing. I could, I could picture that next to the drum kit or like on that front thing. It was just like a big W. And Flair, he, he's of course your front man and your lead singer. And Mountie, you know, I don't know what Mountie is. If he's lead guitar, rhythm guitar, I, I, I don't know. Or maybe he's just like that guy from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones who's, who's on stage who just dances the entire time. Oh my god. I look I look forward to a few more of those, but we'll just go right into the next match. But actually before that, we have something that's cut from this video. So it's something that I had to sacrifice in order to get these Survivor Series team promos. Sergeant Slaughter wants his country back, and we're we're building him to be a replacement at the Survivor Series. And God knows we need plenty of those. I mean, eighty eight, you had Scott Casey who was a replacement for a replacement. Which is like pinch hitting for the pinch hitter. But, you know, you're, you're always gonna need that. Stuff, stuff is gonna come up in this business, as Paul would say. So the Nasty Boys are up next, taking on Jim Arnon and Chris Harn. At least I, I think I wrote Jim Arnon. It's not QAnon, at least, so that, that's good. Don't have to deal with any of that. As Vince, he keeps referring back to the Sergeant Slaughter. He made a mistake, like, Yes, committing treason is making a mistake. I, I don't know what world that's in. The Nasty Boys, having lost the tag team titles to the Legion of Doom, who we're actually going to see in a little while, they had a match with each other on the Arsenio Hall show on this month in 1991, aired on November 22nd. So just in advance of the Survivor Series, the Friday before. And that that match is rather interesting because it's called by Gene Okerlund and... Jake Roberts, who was ostensibly there to scout his opponents for the Survivor Series. Now, of course, his Cobra would bite Randy Savage the following day on Superstars, and he would get pulled from it at, like, the last second so they could set up the whole Tuesday in Texas deal. So Jerry Sags, he offers a handshake because, and the guy accepts it. I don't know which one is Arnon and which one is Han, and it really doesn't matter. But apparently he thinks he's in some sort of Ring of Honor match circa 2002, and Sags just pulls him in and clotheslines him as we get a truly bizarre comment from the commentary team about Jerry Sags, and I'm left scratching my head. Uh, who would want to shake hands with a nasty boy? A very, very foolish maneuver, folks. That's just not too bright. No telling where those hands have been. Boy, I'll say. Oh, or where they're going. Have you ever seen him with Kleenex in his room? I've never been to his room. Tell us about it, Piper. Never mind. Okay. Because you listen to Greetings from Allentown, if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, 
Did the WWF in the golden era ever make a reference to masturbation during a course of a match? You would say, why, yes, on the 11-12-91 superstars, Jerry Sags was in the ring and Piper made reference to tissues in his hotel room and his hand not knowing where it's been. So, I mean, wow. I mean, that's out there even for Piper. And you can see Vince kind of, I don't know why I say he shut the door on it. But anyway, we get elbow, elbows from Knobs as they now debate which one is nastier, Knobs or Sags. And I think we all know the answer to that one. And the answer is Knobs. I, I, I just believe that to be true. Also, his career lasted a little bit longer. We get the pit stop. Now, I thought about this. When you have the enhancement talent tag team on the other side, and I've talked at great length about how many tags they're allowed to get. Usually it's only one where the guy who starts out and then he'll tag out and then the other guy will eat the pin. He, he tosses the poor guy over to make the tag after the pit stop because I think that there's an unwritten rule of Nasty Boys matches where whoever takes the pit stop doesn't have to eat the pin. I I, th- I think that's fair. You shouldn't have to do both of them. Like One of them is like the most disgusting move that you can take and then... You know, the, let, let, let's have the other guy take the loss. As the the other uh, the other guy, who by the way, just definitely not as good, takes a terrible looking Bret Hart charging into the turnbuckle in the corner bump face first. Except he does it kind of in like slow motion, and then he gets clothesline in the back of the head. So Knobs then hits that avalanche move where Sags. Irish whips him into the man, and the power slam and elbow off the top by Jerry Sags, which I think is enhanced by the fact that Jerry Sags does not look smooth or graceful hitting it. It is what it is. It's a perfectly good tag team finisher for its time. And once again, I will reiterate the point, and I said this on the Place to Be podcast a couple of weeks ago, the Nasty Boys are just better than Power and Glory. You know why? Because they look different, it's a fresh act, And these guys haven't been around since 1985 where you have all that Paul Roma baggage in the past. And not to mention the Hercules stuff, even though he was pushed from time to time. Having these guys instead of power and glory, I think, was the proper choice. Well, according to Sid Justice, when he leads his team into battle at the Survivor Series, Wednesday night, November 27th, Thanksgiving Eve, Jake the Snake Roberts' reign of terror will end forever. As I mentioned, Sid bows out of the Survivor Series due to a torn bicep. That is revealed on the following week's Superstars. And that kind of ramps up the Macho Man reinstatement thing all over again. But I'm trying to think of how you would have done that angle if you have Jake and the Macho Man and Sid all all tied together in some way. Like, what happens to Sid on his way to the Royal Rumble? Is the Savage and Jake thing, how, how is that affected? But this, I'm not letting this go by, especially since I did the Earthquake Squashes Damien angle last week. The bizarre team of the Jake and Quake connection, which is what I'm going to call them. Oh yeah, IRS and Tugboat, excuse me, Typhoon. They're there as well. But to me, they're inconsequential in spite of the fact that friggin' IRS, the, the, the fascist that he is, thinks that he's the one who threw together this team. Big boss man, as you can see, IRS is no idiot. Look at the team that I've assembled myself with. And it's just for one cause, to get at you alone, boss man. You know, Legion of Doom, 
Boss man, Sid Justice, you guys have as much chance of surviving as a Thanksgiving turkey. <laughs> Speaking of turkey, Sid Justice, my oh my, how does it feel, my man, knowing that somebody used you? Fooled you for the fool that you truly are. Do you think it's going to get any better than Survivor Series? No, it's not. It's just going to get a lot worse. Trust me. Trust me. Okay, so I guess that's where the angle would have gone. It would have gotten a lot worse for Sid Justice in some form or fashion. But Earthquake, who's standing in the background, doesn't say anything the entire promo. He's not bothered by the snake that is directly in front of him, despite six months earlier claiming to hate snakes and pets of all kinds. Well, let us let us not forget that as well. Typhoon is just a horrible heel promo. Now, I don't know if he was much better in, like, PWF Florida or other places when he was the big steel man. I'm not going to speak to all that. But here, as Typhoon, he was so bad at it that, quite frankly, uh, having the natural disasters as heels seemed like kind of an ill fit. So on the other side, we have a team that I think gets overlooked in part because... Well, they never made it to the finish line. Sid, the Legion of Doom, and the Big Boss Man? These are three acts here, between Sid, the Boss Man, Road Warriors, Legion of Doom, whatever you want to call them, that are all beloved in their own way, and they're all like, the smallest guy out of all of them is either Hawk or Animal. See, in Survivor Series, would it be you, Jake Roberts? Would it be Diablo? Would it be The Undertaker? Who will you bring? What will you bring in that bag? I don't care, just as long as I get the chance to put my hands around your stinking throat and maybe snap your nothing out. <laughs> this RS, you! I know you got problems with natural disasters. I know you got problems with Jake the Snake Roberts. But I'm going to ask you a favor. Leave IRS to me. He's questioning my character. And nobody, but nobody questions the big boss man's character. We're going to kick some butt. You can count on it. Everybody's got problems here. What you're looking at here are the problem solvers. We need to take care of business. You IRS. You're going to get your butt kicked, and you, Roberts, for being a deceit, is going to get your little snake behind, beat up, and you disasters are going down by the yellow deer. You know something? You're minus of a leaky faucet the way you yap. You're always dripping at the mouth where you can forget about it at Survival Series. There's one thing that I've noticed is there's a certain trope to these where leave blank to me. Like, the guy who's a rival on the other side, it's like, well, I don't really know what to say. Well, just say, leave IRS for me, and that'll be your part of the promo. Animal with another solid promo. I I know I made fun of him in the past, and I'm not just saying that because he passed away fairly recently. Even in advance of that, I was hearing better Animal promos, starting with the heel promo from November of 88, which showed that I did about a year ago after the Road Warriors beat the Midnight Express for the nwa tag team titles and hawk you know his usual stuff but he referred to it as survival series which i know sometimes you know it drives me nuts when people say wahoo mcdaniels or the boston gardens you know you'd say well why do you why are you not annoyed when somebody says survival series like it's it's just funny to me for whatever reason because all it ever does and of course this comes back to the 1988 survivor series i love dudes who say that because bad news brown in his Amazing promo with Sean Mooney after walking out on his team. Survival series means totally nothing to me. Oh, that was, that was such a good one. So why, why, why don't we just go right into the next one, which is the Legion of Doom taking on Peter Weeks and Brian Costello as 
the Macho Bad says that LOD are the Bears, the Giants, and the Packers all rolled into one. So I thought to myself, okay, well, those are long-standing National Football League teams. But at the time, let's let's just say at the time, in 1991, although maybe this is unfair. Maybe I should go off 1990 records since – but this is airing November 2nd. The season is halfway over. Bears would go 11-5. and five. They'd lose a wild card game to the Cowboys at home. Giants would go 8-8. Eight and eight. They had a new coach and a new quarterback, Jeff Hostedler, taking over full-time for Phil Simms after basically leading the way for the last six or seven games into the Super Bowl. And the Green Bay Packers were 4-12 and 12 in their last season before the Brett Favre era. Also, why they're so terrible in Tecmo Super Bowl is because, well, those those are the rosters that they had in that. Which, by the way, I should point this out before I forget, on the Place to Be Nation pop feed this past week, or coming up, I will be on a show called Making Mount Rushmore, talking about sports video games, such as Tecmo Super Bowl. I mean, I'm not spoiling anything. I think I've referenced that game before in my love of Tecmo Bowl and... Tecmo Bow and QB Eagles with his amazing <laughs> shotgun end sweep plays, which is basically the Cam Newton offense that the Patriots are running these days. So anyway, my, my point is that if you add those three teams together in 1991, they're, they're sub 500, so a little bit below par for all of them. So kind of like the Legion of Doom and their WWF runs in 91, 92, and then 97 and 98. Maybe if maybe if they were worse, it would be like the '98 run because that did not go well at all. Watching it in real time in '91, it didn't strike me or anybody that I knew that they were less than what they were. Now I know that there are people who are bothered by the shoulder pads being different. I don't think that that was a huge deal. A lot of people are oh they changed from black to red. Honestly, though. When it comes to the tweaks that WWF would make to certain characters who came from somewhere else, I th- I think that that's pretty mild. I mean, it could have been a lot worse of what they did for them and would have made that run a hell of a lot shorter. As, as this, They're taking on Peter Weeks and Brian Costello, and this Weeks guy, who I've never seen before, he's a wildly out-of-shape job guy for 1991. Like, he, he would fit in in, like, a 1977 episode of All-Star. But, uh, come on here. I mean, we're, we're talking, I know Zahorian just got indicted here. But, come on. I mean, get yourself into some shape a little bit. Animal with a drop kick and an elbow. And we get the inset promo from the Legion of Doom, so we might as well just hear from them again. That's the Pharisees! You all will see that the Legion of Doom can survive! And who's to say... Natural disaster after Survival Series. If we'll have any competition left, Survival Series, Survival Series, Survival Series. Hey, that all sounds good to me. As Costello mercifully gets in there, he's press slammed by Hawk. As there's now a question on the commentary team about Jake Snake and whether the LOD might be afraid of it, and I'm like. Jake was in the Legion of Doom before the Legion of Doom, which is funny. If you go back to 1983 in Georgia, basically Paul Ellering's stable should end up being Jake, the Road Warriors, and the Spoiler. I thought King Kong Bundy was part of it as well, but uh, I, I I didn't see him on the list that I was looking at. As Hawk 
hits a rude awakening neckbreaker, which kind of amused me and a funny coincidence since Rick Rude, who had been gone from the WWF for about a year, also a Minnesota guy, like the Road Warriors are in reality, he made his debut as the Hall- Hall- Halloween Havoc Phantom or the WCW. I don't even remember what it was, but he was a masked dude who beat Tom Zank and then he unmasked later on in the show. As Animal hits a 5 out of 10 DiBiase Sawyer Power Slam Doomsday Device finishes. And I said Costello had to take that move because they're not going to get that other guy's fat ass up for it. It's much longer than 5 seconds on the double team. So I had Jesse Ventura's voice in the in my head just saying, Oh, come on, 12 seconds of double teaming there. Poor Jesse, it looks like he did not win. I, I know it's an election-free zone. I'm not going to talk about the main guys, but Jesse Ventura getting over 1,500 votes in Alaska, at least to the point where I last checked, that that is just wild. As we take a look there, the WBF magazine, you want to talk about intensity. Yes. Gary Stridham, Lou Ferrigno, and all the WBF superstars show you what intensity is all about in the WBF magazine. All right. What? We go from intensity to, uh, to this. So again, this ties back to last week's show where Vince is reading the promo for WBF or WBF magazine and it goes right into the funeral parlor music. It's just a nice juxtaposition there. As Paul Bearer's guest this week is The Undertaker and it's like, oh, how did he manage to score him for the funeral parlor show this week? It's like when Jimmy Smits used to be a guest on the George Lopez show. It's like, how did he manage to get him? Or like Adam Carolla being on the Jimmy Kimmel show. At least to the point, you know, before Adam Carolla became unbelievably unfunny. So apparently Undertaker was just taking a nap in the casket. Which, like, okay, as I've mentioned many times, you can't just go and buy a casket for, for obvious reasons. Because they don't want people just running around with, like, black market caskets. Oh, my oh, goodness. Yeah. There he is. Take a good look, Hulk Hogan. This is your gravest challenge. Your gravest challenge at the Survivor Series. Oh, Hogan, not only will I take your World Wrestling Federation Championship, but I'll take what is most dear to all of mankind, Hulk Hogan at Survivor Series. I will take your soul and leave your then rotting flesh to Mr. Paul Barrow. This was quick and to the point, a lot faster than some of the other funeral parlor segments that I've seen in the past. Hogan kind of goes all religious in response to this. We get a promo from him a little bit later on. This is quick, to the point. The Undertaker, he never gets exposed for his character. But I did have a thought. You know, we have this 30th anniversary celebration where it's Undertaker's final farewell, which I feel like is reaching Terry Funk proportions at this point, where I thought we had a farewell for him at the 2015 Survivor Series, but I guess that was just the 25th anniversary. Point is, if the Undertaker, he, he benefited 
from excellent timing, which is one of those things in, in life where you need to have good timing for certain things to happen. If he had come along two years later, let's say, like, if he comes to WWF and they debut The Undertaker after WrestleMania 8, I don't think this goes quite as well. Because here he comes in, they allow a general build. He's able to beat all these characters from the past that everybody knows and remembers. Jimmy Snuka, WrestleMania 7. And then there was a Texas Tornado match on a wrestling challenge from around this time in 91 where he went over Kerry clean with the tombstone. So, you know, all all these familiar names that if he had come along two years later, Undertaker never would have gotten to beat. Not to mention, you know, the Hulk Hogan match at Survivor Series, which despite all those shenanigans, he, he still won. Of course, he got railroaded by Hogan saying, I hurt my neck, even though that was like one of the safer tombstones because... Hogan's head didn't even approach that chair. But yeah, I mean, just a beautifully built character done at the right time. And thank God he didn't come out of an egg. Getting around to my favorite time of the year. As a matter of fact, I can hardly wait for Wednesday, November the 27th. We are just three and a half weeks away from the annual World Wrestling Federation's Thanksgiving tradition. This year on Thanksgiving Eve, of course, I am talking about the Survivor Series. It's now time for the proper Survivor Series report. Mean Gene is there. So this is going to be different from the Event Center promos. Or, or so I thought coming in. As we start with talk of the Sid Justice team versus Jake the Snake Roberts team. And once again, we're going to hear from Jake's team. But because this is the national one that's on every version of Superstars that goes out there and isn't in the event center for places that don't have a live event to promote, so you just promote the Survivor Series, you're going to get a different promo from Jake's team. And with this being the national one, I think it's going to be a little bit different. You're not going to hear so much from Tuggers. I mean, Typhoon. And IRS. And you're going to hear more from Jake. And who knows? Maybe Earthquake will you know, say something this time. Like, I don't know. Maybe explain why he does isn't afraid of snakes and why he doesn't hate it anymore. Survivor Series? <laughs> I guess you might say that. What I'll tell you, said Justice, is this. If this devil gets a hold of you, brother, you don't come back. Legion of Doom, you've got yourself a team, but look at the team that the natural disasters are on. We will survive. You have about as much survival chance as a holiday turkey. (laughs) And Big Boss Man, you're a dangerous man. You're a tax cheat and a criminal with a badge. You're going down. So if you guys think for one second that you've got any type of prayer that's going to save you from this, you're sadly mistaken because in the Survivor Series, we will take no prisoners, man. We will give them to the devil himself. Well, sadly, IRS was allowed to talk, but at least Jake got two little segments where he got to say things. Earthquake pipes up. No word on, you know, how he's cured his fear of snakes or, or why he's, you know, now playing grab ass with Jake all of a sudden after everything that happened not long before this. But Typhoon literally says the exact same thing that he said in the other promo. That's how, that's what I mean when I say he's not a good heel promo. It's like, all right, Fred, 
Uh, just, just say you got no chance because you, you got as much chance as a Thanksgiving turkey. And he still says holiday turkey. Like, is somebody going to be offended if you say Thanksgiving? I don't know. I, 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 I really don't. I don't think there's any sort of war on Thanksgiving that some people like to complain about in some corners. Now, the Roddy Piper team versus the Ric Flair team. Piper, Bret Hart, British Bulldog, and Virgil, which is a very strong 1991 team. I mean, that's four of the top six baby faces in the promotion, at least from a singles perspective. And, and I've already said my piece about Flair, DiBiase, Mountie, and Warlord. And we're going to hear from Piper's team, and they get longer than the usual. I mean, they get they get a full minute here. And Piper, his remarks on where Flair came from are rather fascinating. Rick Flair, you gobbly, gooker-looking, feather-wearing freak, survival brother. I've been surviving here for nine years. You got one little hello, hello. You got seven years survival. You, you've been playing triple A all too long. And as for DiBiase. Oh, wait, 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 wait. DiBiase, you can run, but you sure can't hide, man. I'm going to hunt you down like rain. Yes. Eliminate you, you big, fat, ugly turkey. Yes. Yeah. And as for the warlord... Wallard, the British Bulldog is going to show you what strength's all about. Muscle versus muscle. It's survival time, Wallard. Only the tough survive. And the Mountie, nobody forgot the Mountie. He likes to think he walks tall and carries a big stick. But when you step in the ring with this team, it's not going to help you in the Survivor Series. Right, guys? Yes, because we're a team that drive to survive. And you'll find when you carry a big stick, you don't have to walk so soft. <laughs> this promo had all the elements that I'm looking for. Piper referring to Jim Crockett Promotions as AAA ball, or WCW, I guess it would be, but I mean, it was JCP for longer. It's like, you guys came from the same place, but Piper makes the point that he's been there. He says nine years, but really, you were there 84 to 87 and then 89 to now. So you're, you've really been there for like five or six. You're not allowed to count the part where you were out promoting They Live. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, you, you, you just can't. I could watch British Bulldog Warlord promos all day. <laughs> like, like there are parts where they get to talk on each other. Uh, I don't know. They're all amusing. Maybe it's just the memory of that WrestleMania 7 thing. I don't know. And Virgil smirking with all the talk of walking with a big stick. <laughs> I mean, come on. Like, am I supposed to pretend I don't know what they're talking about here? As I said earlier, we're going to hear from Hulk Hogan. And two weeks from now, he's going to appear on the funeral parlor. He's going to be confronted by Ric Flair. And you're going to have the awesome image of The Undertaker pulling the crucifix off. A direct callback to Piper's Pit in 87, where Andre does the same thing. And you have all those all those stars on one stage. Flair, Piper, Hogan, Savage. Piper and Savage had come out with chairs. The Undertaker. And Paul Bearer is there, too, in the background making faces, which always adds something to the program. Then November 23rd, Hogan gives a platform interview and kind of goes all religious, almost treating Hulkamania as some sort of religion. And I'm wondering, you know, did he go to that point before he was on the funeral parlor? And he kind of does stuff in themes for the various feuds that he's in. Kind of like the boss man was all, I am Judge Hogan, I am jury and executioner, earthquake, a lot, lot of uh, seismology stuff. So let's see what he has to say. You know something, Hulkamaniacs? 
Some people around the world act like this is the first time I've had people get down on the holster. For eight long years, I've watched them come and go, dudes. I've heard them say, Hulkamania's dead. Hulkamania's gonna die. And oh yeah, in the Survivor Series, this is the greatest challenge we've ever had to face. But we've seen the casket. I've had the spies out since day one, brothers. And you know something? With me and all my Hulkamaniacs, Undertaker, you and Paul Bearer would have to dig a hole the size of a football field, brother. Because to beat Hulk Hogan, the grave would have to be so big. There are so many Hulkamaniacs in that casket, brother. That won't get the job done. So when you step in the ring with the light, with the truth, with the life of Hulkamania, brother, you're going to realize it was more than you bargained for. And what you're going to do when Hulk Hogan, my Hulkamaniacs, and the largest arms in the world bury you, Undertaker. <sighs> I wouldn't say that that was too religious. He, he doesn't really walk down that path until he has that traumatic event in the funeral parlor. And Gene just announces other matches. Apparently, these are just announced. And this one is pretty crazy. We got Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Jim D'Anville Nightheart, The Dragon, and Texas Tornado taking on the amazing conglomerate of Colonel Mustafa, The Berserker, Big Bully Busick, and Skinner. Now, out of those eight guys, only five of them would make it to the match. The Dragon would quit, allegedly because he refused to do that job to The Undertaker that the Texas Tornado went ahead and did on that episode of Challenge. The Anvil would get hurt via Ric Flair's figure four and the Beverly Brothers in the aisle as he was being helped to the back, so he wouldn't make it to Survivor Series. And Big Billy Busick quit at a certain point, but his final match aired on the November the 23rd Superstars, which, oddly enough, was a title match against Bret the Hitman Hart for the Intercontinental title. And the Rockers and the Bushwhackers, I guess this would be the tag team version of it. You don't get a 10 on 10 at this point, but hey, I'll take what I can get. They're taking on the Nasty Boys and the Beverly Brothers. And, well, if we're lucky, we're going to hear from some of those teams in the event center coming up. Well, this is the one we've been waiting for all week long, a non-title matchup. What the heck does Jimmy Hart have in his arms? Breakfast from jail? Uh, I don't think so. Wild guess. Rollers on it, whatever it is. The Mountie! Now I look to see if I could find a version of Maple Leaf for this week. I could not. To see how they play this up with Jacques Rougeau and how they dance around using the Mountie name. Because they, they couldn't at this point. When he did the match at the Montreal Forum earlier in 91, him and the boss man, Jacques is not wearing the Mountie outfit. He's billed as Jacques Rougeau. It also happened to be the match where Dino Bravo turned face for the Montreal audience. I mean, you wouldn't really see him in a WWF ring after that. But, hey, you know, good for him, I guess. So up next, we have a non-title match. Between the Mountie and Brett the Hitman Hart for the inter well, not for the Intercontinental title. Now I wondered to myself, why is why is it non-title? And maybe earlier in this show, I don't remember if I said it was a title match, but apparently it's not. But the reason for that becomes apparent. It's Jimmy Hart is carrying a box, and as we all know in professional wrestling, anything that comes out of a box is immediately over. And when he gets to ringside, he puts it under the ring. Again, two weeks in a row, we get people coming to the, you know, having stuff put under the ring. Last week it was Damien, and now we have this. 
Now, Brett, making his way down in the all-pink, with the pink jacket, he lost Mr. Perfect as a rival because of that injury after SummerSlam. So what does he do in the aftermath? Well, eh, just throw him against the Warlord and have him beat him on house shows for a month. Then he wins the untelevised 1991 King of the Ring, which they would hold in Providence, Rhode Island. And I would be remiss if I did not bring up the elephant in the room when it comes to Bret Hart this week, that SI article, which I, has to be an online-only deal because, well, let, let's just say, Sports Illustrated, the magazine, is dead. And it's it's been dead ever since that equity firm purchased it, I want to say, less than a year ago. Turned it from a weekly to a monthly magazine, which I can understand why with the magazine business not being the way it is. But Sports Illustrated has been declining for quite some time. I don't know why you buy it for the brand name, but they are immediately driving it into the ground because all the best writers pretty much have left. And some of the, well, the quality control isn't there. Hence, this Bret Hart article that everybody was piling on. Now, being a skeptic, I thought to myself, could it possibly be that bad? And I took a look at it. I read it. It's not It's not that long. It's about 300 uh, words, I want to say. And it is as bad as everybody says that it is. The best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be. And a big baby. As everyone reliving the infamous Montreal Screwjob on its 23rd anniversary, I couldn't help but think, why are we supposed to feel sorry for Bret Hart more than two decades later simply because he took himself too seriously? Oh, boy. Hart was leaving the company. At that point, should he really get to dictate the terms? I didn't know falls that count anywhere, but Canada was a kind of match. Imagine if this happened in professional sports rather than professional wrestling. Well, it didn't, so we don't have to imagine it. Let a star player refuse to enter a game or run a play and wait for the takes. Ask Scotty Pippen... What people think about that 20-something years after the last dance. Yeah, Scottie Pippen did not have a contractual thing where he had creative control in his predetermined sport. Because basketball is not predetermined unless the Lakers win the NBA title, in which case it is, it is completely a work. Brett had creative control, reasonable creative control. And I think it was exercised reasonably, given the circumstances. But this guy has absolutely no empathy also, for what Brett went through in the aftermath, no mention in the article of that particular contractual clause. It's just absolute crap. And a sign that how, of just how much Sports Illustrated has declined. I mean, and it's been rapid, too. It's like a bad, I don't want to, I hate this term, but like a, a Mark Mag piece, you know, from back in the day in like a wrestling it, it, it wouldn't. It wouldn't even be fit for something like that, I don't think. And by the way, Brett is probably in terms of kayfabe in this match and carrying it back several years. He's got to be still pissed that the Rougeaus were stealing his money back in 88 and 89 when Jimmy Hart gave the Jacques and Raymond a piece of his contract. And he doesn't hand the title to Hebner, which probably a good idea given where that whole relationship is going because, of course, it is a non-title match. And as Brett gets in the ring after giving the sunglasses to a kid at ringside, the Mountie heads outside when Brett gets into the ring. And now he's asking for the microphone.
doesn't deserve a title shot. Right? But what I want you to do, I want you to tell everybody out here, all these beautiful hillbillies. Now you just shut up a minute. I want you to tell We know why it's not a title match, Mr. Mountie. Everyone in this arena knows why this is not a title match, Mr. Mountie. Everybody but you. Well, I don't know. Do they actually know? Because within a month of this, you're going to see such luminaries as the Brooklyn Brawler, Big Bully Busick. They get title shots. As does Skinner at the Tuesday in Texas pay-per-view. So is it that out of line, even though the Mountie lost to the boss man at SummerSlam, which is about a month before this taping anyway, that he would receive an Intercontinental title match? I don't think the structure of the contendership for that title is as rigid as being, oh, I don't know, number one contender for the world title. I don't think it works the same way. Is it because you're a little yellow? Oh, wait a minute. Is it maybe because you're a gutless coward? Oh, wait a minute. None of the above. Jacques Rougeau is one of the all-time delightful dick heels that you'll ever find in professional wrestling. Vince calling him Mr. Mountie earlier on, I, I forgot to mention that. <laughs> that just strikes me a certain way. Mr. Mountie. <laughs> when you refer to the guy as his gimmick name and you put Mr. in front of it, like like Vince has been reading the New York Times style guide or something. Like, it would always bug me back in the day when like the New York Times would refer to Mr. Bin Laden. It's like, yes, he should he should be accorded that level of respect. I'm not saying the Mountie is, you know, the same as Osama bin Laden. <laughs> Just give Brett the mic already. You've done a wonderful job filibustering for two minutes. I think the hitman wants the microphone. He's got it now. Tell him, hitman. I could never give a title match to a jailbird. <laughs> Gonna have to grab that particular Vince McMahon laugh and label it Vince McMahon Laugh 91. I rather like that. <laughs> That's some good stuff, but we have to confront the fact that the World Wrestling Federation has changed quite a bit over the last four, four and a half years. Because if you rewind, and I did this about, oh, six months ago, the episode where Ken Patera has his debate with Bobby Heenan, and Heenan's calling him a jailbird. Patera is the face in that, and he wa- he actually went to jail for a crime. Yes, he, he might have been railroaded, but I don't really want to talk about that part of it. But he actually went to jail in real life for a real crime. The Mountie lost a wrestling match, which I understand, you know, ribbing him or making fun of him for losing to the boss man in that fashion after, you know, playing up what he what he was asking the cops to do to boss man. Should he end up winning? 
It just seems like everything has changed. So this guy goes to jail for something that, you know, is not necessarily a crime, just the stipulation in a match. Okay, we're just having fun here, all right? But now Brett says, I could never give a title match to a jailbird. And Jimmy Hart, finally, the master plan is revealed. This is all premeditated. This is why they probably did not care that it was a title match. They had to soften up Brett by throwing water on him and electrocuting him. Yes, electrocuting him. Jimmy Hart just nailed him with water. Oh, my God! Oh, unbelievable! Look at that! That shot stick! The water has unquestionably intensified the effect of the shot stick! Indeed, the water would intensify the effects of the cattle prod shock stick, whatever terminology you want to use for it. But with Vince yelling there at the end, I don't know if he's calling a wrestling angle or if he's directing a porno film. Get him off! Get him off! Get him off! <laughs> Can't help but think of a porn director or a porn producer when you got a guy, Jimmy Hart, who calls himself the Colonel right there. All we need is a guy named Jack. Oh, wait, Jacques is the French form of Jack. It's all boogie nights. It's happening directly in front of us, just with a shock stick and water thrown on Bret Hart, which, by the way, the USDA, only in the year 2000, so earlier this year, before the whole COVID-19 thing, they banned the use of the such devices that the Mountie has in schools. Now, you're saying this wasn't banned in schools? Well... It was particularly aimed, sadly enough, at one place in Massachusetts, a, a, a special needs school in Canton, Mass, where they would use that on kids who had developmental disabilities or autism who attended that school, which is a horrifying news story around here. Thankfully, they didn't dump water on the kids before they did that. Now, to his credit, Brett is doing a great sell of being electrocuted like this and it's not quite get, like getting bit by a king cobra the way savage would three weeks from now but wow an electrocution angle which explains why it's non-title and why mounty and jimmy hart would set him up like this because nothing ventured nothing lost i mean it's not like they could win the title so no match doesn't show up in brett's cage match or anything as a no contest and once again they talked about Rude debuting in WCW and Hawk doing the Rude Awakening neckbreaker. Funny how WCW did an electrocution thing in the Chamber of Horrors match the previous Sunday at Halloween Havoc. It's amazing how all these things tie together. Once again, the Mountie reaches new heights in despicable behavior. The question at this point, what condition will the hitman be in at the Survivor Series, Wednesday night, November 27th? I've been a little hard on Sean Mooney's style the last couple weeks, so I'm, I'm going to draw it back. King of the segues on that one, where he's like watching the Bret Hart thing on the monitor, going to casually bring it in to this event center, and I'm just sitting here like a pressure luck contestant, where... All the things are on the big board. I'm like, no whammies, no whammies, big money, big money. Stop. And then I'm just hoping that I'm going to get the Survivor Series team promo that I'm looking for. And yes, big money, big money, big money. Stop. 
$5,000 in a spin. Hacksaw Jim Duggan, I'm sure you real serious survivors. I'm the real survivor. Oh, you too long. You know, Dragon Boy, in Survivor Gary, I'm going to come out and I'm going to beat your little lizard head right off. Tornado, the forecast is very gloomy. They are whatever don't kill me, makes me stronger. I'm going to get my hands on you. God, what a promo that is. I mean, Colonel Mustafa is slowly morphing back into the Iron Sheik where he's shouting out the Ayatollah. Like, that's not Iraq. That, that's Iran. He, he's clearly getting mixed up at this point. Maybe he was on something. I don't know. I mean, the fact that you get to hear Big Bully Busick speak. I mean, how often did you get that? Because you had Whippleman speaking for him most of the time. Berserker apparently has a feud with Jim Neidhart. I didn't really remember that at all. I mean... This is it's so amazing. And Steve Kern versus Ricky Steamboat, That's that sounds like a pretty good feud if handled properly. Now, Skinner versus the Dragon, I mean, Steamboat's about to leave. He's not even going to make it to the Survivor Series. He's one of the three guys who didn't. Well, Skinner, Dragon, yeah, that one doesn't work out so well. But So we get right of reply here where we get to hear from the face team and my God, is this, is this like, if this was 1984, holy crap. Survivor! 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 Hey, Bully! Hey, Mustafa! Hey, Berserker! Hey, Skinner! Can you survive against us? <laughs> this team is going to be breathing a blaze of fire. Only the strong will survive, and we will take you down. United we stand at Survivor Series. This team right here, we're going to attack, attack, attack. You're going down, tough guys. Why is it always with Duggan's team, there's always got to be chance? Like in 89, like, huh, 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 where they're all aiming the two-by-fours at the camera. Poor Ricky Steamboat, he can't even speak in his normal voice here. And it's not because he has a damaged larynx or whatever. <laughs> but Duggan and Dragon, they, they teamed at the 87 Survivor Series. So nice little callback for those of us paying attention. But then again, as I said, the Dragon the dragon doesn't make it there. In fact, he's in WCW by the time the Survivor Series starts. His pretty smart play by Ricky getting himself fired for not doing a job, which cancels the non-compete. And he's able to just head over and work the Clash of the Champions with Dustin Rhodes against Arn Anderson and Larry Zbysko in one of the best tag team, a, a top 10 in the U.S. of all time tag team match. Yeah, like the Young Bucks versus FTR, which I haven't seen, but you know, there's there's a debate about that, and who who knows? I, I'm going to say, if somebody asks a question of, is this top 10 of all time, the answer is probably not. And those who are asking the question are just kind of trying to drive a narrative for their favorites. We actually get a third promo, so I'm going to go back to the big board and play the game again. All right, big money, big money, no whammies, no whammies, and stop! Big 
one Survivor Series, and it always rolls around about this time of the year. And it's only appropriate that this team right here, wild and crazy, take care of a bunch of liars and losers and has-beens. I'll tell you what, the big question at Survivor Series this year is, who's the brains of this team? I don't know. Beverly Brothers, Blake and Bo, you don't know the Rockers or the Bushwhackers. Oh, we're going to be walking and a-walking together. Nasty boys, Beverly Brothers, Good to know that Marty Jannetty owns a calendar so that he knows when the Survivor Series comes around. Shawn Michaels at least being self-aware there where he's like, oh, yeah, who's who's the brains of this team? And the Bushwhackers just kind of doing their usual stuff. Of course, the, the match would basically be all sort of background to the Rockers breakup in progress at that at that point. So I guess that promo wasn't as bad as it could have been. Maybe not a total whammy, but I, I don't think you're going to get as much comedy out of those guys, even though I know the Bushwhackers are the comedy team. It's just, it just doesn't strike me as funny as freaking Colonel Mustafa, Skinner, Berserker, and Big Bully Busick. I mean, come on. So we go back to Vince. He says that Brett is okay because they have to wrap the show. You can't leave it so that, oh, my God, is Bret Hart going to die? Like, no, no, he's, he's not going to die from that. But next week on the show, and this is how they close things out, as I mentioned, Jim the Anvil Nightheart, dun dun dun, is taking on Ric Flair, not billed as the Nature Boy in the WWF, although he would wear the Nature Boy robe on occasions. Ric Flair, you come into the World Wrestling Federation as a self-proclaimed champion. You think I'm unpredictable? You think I'm wild? You think I'm crazy? You think I'm that? Woo! <laughs> you haven't seen anything yet, baby, because next week I'm going to run right over your little blonde head. <laughs> Rick, you got to understand something. Next week you're wrestling Jim the Anvil Nightheart right here. That man's nuts. He's a lunatic. He's crazy. He's had shock treatments. He's nuts. He, there's something drastically wrong with him. But, Bobby, I'm the real world champion. I like crazy Nightheart. Come on down. Woo! And so begins Ric Flair's journey through, well, most of the 1997 Hart Foundation. There is no Ric Flair-Owen Hart match. And that that's one of those where, you know, it, you don't really think about it right away, but it's two high-profile names that never had a match with each other, at, at least as far as I can tell. But that'll do it for WWF Superstars for November 2nd, 1991. <laughs> First off, congratulations to Joe Morano and Michael Quinn of the Our Vantage Point podcast. 200 episodes now in the books for them, not even including their all the Patreon stuff that they've done and the various specials. So great job by them. I hope to join them in eight episodes, which I guess would be the beginning of January when that would be coming along. I don't know what I'm going to do for my 200th show when I get there. I thought about just doing this Tuesday in Texas. But again, I have to kind of figure out uh, in, in terms of time and how much. Uh, and, and also, you know, I am doing a show very close to this Tuesday in Texas right now. But, hey, you know, I, I, I could just cover that. It, it really doesn't matter. But, yes, congratulations to those guys. And they do have one of the best Twitter feeds out there. And on the sportscasters, my good pal Steve Ben, he's got Ben Ryder, who has a Houston Astros podcast playing off of his book, Astro Ball. Which, in thinking about that whole Astros thing, it went down. It's like, 
it's kind of small potato. I mean, let's can we leave that in the past now? And with the Alex Cora stuff now welcomed back to as Red Sox manager after a one year hiatus, can we talk about the fact that Tony Larusa is now the manager of the Chicago White Sox? And if you'll allow me to digress for a second, when this was rumored several weeks ago, I brought this up on a Zoom call or a text with my friends, and I said, "Can we go back to 1979, August 2nd?" When Tony LaRusso was originally hired by the Chicago White Sox, how many of the other managers in the American League from that time are even still alive? And the answer is more than you might think. It's about half of them are alive and half of them are dead. And by all rights, Tony LaRusso should probably be dead as well, considering he's been popped for another DUI apparently last February, and the White Sox still hired him in spite of all that. And also kind of the casual racism towards Latinos. I mean... You know, it's kind of a bad thing when you consider that, you know, for uh, 80% of the best players on the Chicago White Sox are of Latino descent. And Marcus Stroman says he would never sign with the Chicago White Sox as long as Tony LaRusso is their manager. So good job, Jerry Reinsdorf. You did it again. You dismantled the Bulls dynasty. They could have kept going for a couple more years because you're siding with Jerry Krause over Michael Jordan and Phil Jackson. Like, well, guy who certainly makes good decisions, although... Truth be told, he did buy he did buy the White Sox at a time right before the value of sports franchises would explode. Once again, I don't have a show lined up for next week. Seems like I never do at this point. I'm just kind of playing it week to week. I was thinking of various old JCP shows, maybe going back to like something like '83, but time will tell on that one. There's no YouTube comment theater because there are no comments on this video. It's kind of a secret channel. So don't tell anybody about it, okay? And please, if you can, I know not everybody has access to Apple reviews, but if you leave a five-star review there, it does go a long way to providing social proof that is needed for this podcast to, I don't know, succeed in some form or fashion, and I certainly do appreciate it. And of course, you can always email me, send me a message on the Twitter. I'm happy to receive that as well. Comments on SoundCloud, I know those pop up from time to time for the listeners there. And of course, you can listen to this podcast. Maybe a shout-out to those listening on Spotify. I don't know how many people actually do because I registered for the thing, and I, I never bothered to look up because I'm not that concerned about, oh, geez, I have 53 people listening off the Spotify. It, it doesn't really matter to me. All I care about is that you enjoy this show. And thank you so much for listening, and tune in next time for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown. Mountie. Everyone in this arena knows why this is not a title match, Mr. Mountie. <laughs>